Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. At this point, um, we go around the room and say our names. And to help lead into Carol's talk, if you could say what your main practice or tradition is, um, because we come from so many different traditions here. So my name is Bob, and I'm in the Theravada tradition. We'll do the floor first, and then we'll do the chairs. <laughs> I'm Carl, and I don't really have a tradition per se. Uh, George, I have an eclectic practice, uh, principally the Vipassana. Uh, my name is Frank, and I don't have any. My name is CJ, uh, Terrible. My name is Bill, uh, Terrible. Jack, How are you? Open. Jeff, no. Nicholas, <clears throat> no. Just put it. I'm Todd, I have no particular and my name is Roger, and I'm a dialogue between Christian and Buddhist and other things. I'm Michael, and uh, I sort of travel across the things, mainly Should we start the chairs? Is that the last person? Okay, uh, my name is Peter, and my practice is mainly laziness, but I was trained in that. My name is Paul, uh, the Pasana. I'm Bill. I take what I like from each and leave the rest. <laughs> I'm Robert, and the Pasana. Uh, Mark, no tradition. <clears throat> Peter, no tradition. <clears throat> I'm Steve, and I've lately been drawn to Tibetan. In the dream to that does. I'm hard, the Kim Wolver, non dual tradition. I'm Bose, I'm Marty, no particular tradition. David, eclectic. Uh, Richard, uh, TM, and the TMC is brother. Lucas, Yoga, and Supermanfish. Andrew, Luke. of the lesbian Buddhist Sangha in Berkeley, and she's spoken here many times before. I'm not going to talk about the tradition she comes from. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I'm going to 
going to talk about today is um, a little bit of my own personal journey. Uh, not so much a scholarly talk or presentation of a Buddhist concept as um, an attempt to share with you uh, kind of what I've been going through um, and how Buddhist practice helps me and how I find myself blending traditions. And that was part of the reason why I was interested to see um, where some of you all were at about this issue, which I think is an important one. Um, Probably most of you realize that an image like that is from Tibetan Buddhism. I put the Medicine Buddha up there because I have been in my own limited way uh, working with this image and a practice that has to do with Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism and this particular deity or god, the healing Buddha or the medicine Buddha, uh, which is quite new to me, especially um, in any kind of serious way. Um, So before I start, I'm going to pay homage to the medicine Buddha, which is part of that tradition. Um, just honoring the fact that I'm trying to deepen my understanding of practices that are different than the ones I've been doing. morning is give you a little background. Some of you have heard a little bit about me because I come here, what, every three or four months or something, which I love doing, and sometimes I relate a little bit about my personal (coughs) life, because for me, my practice is very entwined with my personal life, and I try to understand that and make that happen. Um, So it's important, I think, to share a little bit of this with you. Some of you may know that I've had a lot of death in my family. My mother died a couple of years ago. My father died actually um, late December this year. Well, last year, (laughs) two or three months ago. Um, I have right now a lot of trouble in my workplace. I'm the clinical director at a social service agency, and if you know anything about the current political situation in California, (laughs) um, a lot of things are being cut. And therefore, I'm in charge of all that, and I'm having to let people go. It's a possibility that I could have to let myself go um, within the next six months or a year. Um, When my father died, this winter it also became clear that he had, in fact, disinherited me because I was a lesbian. And um, this is what I had suspected. But, you know, you never know till you really see the papers. And it's kind of hard to actually see it in black and white, and there's a story about how that happened, which is not a pretty story. Also, um, my brother uh, was involved in some of that, I found out, and at this point is in litigation with my sister, who's the main inheritor, and trying to take money away from her. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) My best friend, who I've known from 17 years, died about eight months ago. 
I'm not 17 years, God, 45 years or something, known since um, she was, and I were 17, of cancer. So um, all this to say that I found my main practice, which is Vipassana meditation from the Theravada tradition, um, daily life practice as well as sitting practice, helpful, certainly, as it always has been. Um, But kind of taking all these hits, I was finding myself sort of thrown back on myself in a different kind of way, not doubting my practice particularly, but um, I don't know, just sensing that there was something more or something different I need to be doing, or just because I have a habit of um, when in doubt, look towards spirituality. And that's sort of what I've done even since I was a young woman. Um, I looked towards things and um, found myself just feeling very vulnerable a lot of the time. Um, The way that the Medicine Buddha or the Healing Buddha came to me, I want to take a little time to tell you about it because it may be meaningful to you or not. I don't know, but it's very meaningful to me and I, I find it interesting. I think my practice of Vipassana meditation or particularly mindfulness and awareness and noticing things, uh, interactions, speech patterns, um, my own inner world, all this helped me when I fell back on myself and I felt sort of bereft and questioned a lot to remember or to uh, somehow get in contact with other pieces of myself that I hadn't really been using for a while. I don't know what I, it feels like a very eclectic group anyway from what you've mentioned today about your practice, but I know that for myself, there are specific (coughs) practices that I've neglected, if you want to put it that way. Not, this wasn't a bad thing to be doing, but it just wasn't happening in Theravada Buddhism. Um, Things like visualization, things like uh, intricate ritual, costume if you like, Association with color, and not that it doesn't exist at all, but it's it's not the big deal. You know, of course, it is in other traditions. And um, I, as I started on my spiritual path, started in those things, like probably many of you. You know, like in the 70s or something, people were visualizing things and doing all kinds of um, interesting new age things, uh, which I pretty much abandoned when I came into. Um, Theravada Buddhism at about age 35, I would say, really, is when I really got into it. Um, And that was fine, you know, um, because those practices at that time were not deep for me. They didn't have a a conceptual understanding behind them. They didn't really hold me very well. They were interesting, you know, and I got something out of it. But um, so I kind of put all that aside. But as I found myself thrown back on myself in a way in the last couple of months particularly, um, the image of the Medicine Buddha, and I'm going to pass this around so you can get a better look at him, or let's say the deity, um, somehow kept coming across my computer. (laughs) Uh, First a friend sent me this actual image because she thought it was pretty, and then it would come up in a conversation, you know how those things are, and... um, I thought, well, that's interesting, a Buddha that has to do with healing. Hmm, well, I need healing right now. Well, that's interesting. Oh, but that's Tibetan, and I don't really know what that is, and whatever. So that would go on for a while. Um, 
But the more I kept thinking about the fact that this was a deity associated with healing, mental and physical healing, I got intrigued. I thought, oh, this is right on time, sort of, you know, for me. But I don't know what to do, and it's not my practice, and it's very esoteric, and, you know. Um, Then other things happened. As I allowed the picture to sort of be in my studio, and I thought about it some, um, an email came across my screen saying, the Medicine Buddha Retreat, Seattle, with two ten children. Now I can pronounce it. <laughs> um, oh dear. <laughs> you know. So I looked at the date, and it was only two weeks away. And to make a long story short, I just knew I had to go to this thing. I just had to go. It was perfect um, in many ways. Um, it was a woman teacher, which is always helpful to me. A Westerner who had become a nun in the Vajrayana tradition. It was the branch of, from what I understand, maybe later someone can correct me if I'm wrong on some of these things, because I don't know a lot about this tradition. Um, that her branch is associated with the Dalai Lama, so that's the one. So that made me feel good, because I knew something about the Dalai Lama, right? Um, she's been a nun in that tradition for quite a while, Western woman. Um, and I checked her out with some friends, and they liked her. You know, that's how you kind of do it, right? So I thought, well, okay, Seattle. Um, And I remembered that when I was younger, I had two practices that were really strong, um, although I wasn't able to deepen in them the way I was when I got to mindfulness and Theravada Buddhism. But um, one was what you might call nature religion or paganism, right? Where you really bring yourself in communion with nature and the cycles of nature, right? And the understanding of impermanence that we gain through really, really being out in nature and with nature. However, you can do that. And I practiced that a lot in very desolate country areas when I was younger. Um, and it had a bit of a women's spirituality twist to it in those days. Um, and the other one was I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean and um, when I was about 30. And um, 35, I guess. And there's a Caribbean religion called Santeria, which um, is sort of an Afro-Cuban, Afro-Puerto Rican kind of blend of uh, visualization and deities coming from Africa. They're incorporated with the saints of Catholicism and, you know, the things that happen in the Caribbean. Um, And since I was there, I became interested in that. And from that, I could associate with Tibetan Buddhism. Which is, is really sort of an interesting connection. But because of the idea, right, of, of deities or whatever you want to call these things, these images of power or gods or Buddhas or saints, I mean, you know, call them what you will. Language is difficult, I find, sometimes. Um, so I had a sense of that, and I actually practiced that religion in the Caribbean for a while. The idea that a deity or an entity or something can... Um, what would you say, become charged with energy perhaps or become real to you in some way and that you can work with that or maybe even incorporate it. Uh, it was very much a <coughs> tradition. So as this all started to happen, I realized this wasn't quite as foreign to me as I thought, you know, that there were connections. Also the idea of pilgrimage. I really love the idea of going out of the state, you know, going somewhere else, you know, into a situation where I haven't been before and even if it's just what I thought it was going to be Seattle. And I don't know Seattle, so that gives me a chance to open and 
and being new, you know, with the practice challenges me in that way. Turned out that um, it wasn't really Seattle, it was Bainbridge Island. So, of course, it became a little more of a thing because I had to get off the plane in the airport, right? Then I had to get from the airport to the ferry dock, then I had to get in the ferry to Bainbridge, and then I had to find my way around Bainbridge. It's quite small roads in the country. It wasn't scary or anything, but it was just new. And it was about a five-day retreat, I guess it was. I did it. So the getting there, you know, the decision-making and the different vehicles of transportation moving into, for me, is um, is important, I find. And then, of course, Bainbridge Island. Nature, again. You know, it wasn't just a, a place, a beautiful place like this. I mean, it was... And it, this was very early February, so it was cold and it was rainy. So those of you that know the Northwest, um, but spectacular, you know, because it was right there um, on the Sound, and um, you know, air and sun and water were just doing their thing all day long. You know, all those changes that they do. So th- I could use that too. So, so um, before what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to talk a little about the actual practices. I did there, and some of you may be familiar with this. Um, pardon me if it's kind of a refresher course for you, but uh, and give you some experiences of, of how that was for me, because it was quite different, and what I got from it. And um, But before I do that, I just want to add that the drawing to this Medicine Buddha was um, also through other more subtle means. Um, the last trip I made to Mexico with my friend who died of cancer recently, um, I bought a ring. And it was just a simple blue stone uh, with sort of a silvery stripe in it, which I liked. Um, and later, it's this, I realized it's the closest thing I have to the color of the Medicine Buddha. I mean, it's the closest thing I have. Um, about two or three months before I decided to go on this retreat and had heard about it, some dear friends in the Sangha who had been to Cambodia um, at one of our meetings presented me with a shawl and made a big deal about the color. <laughs> they sort of, in front of the whole Sangha, went on and on about how this was my color and they had known it and they had been in Cambodia. And, you know, <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, thanks. You know, um, again, this very, very much being the color that's associated with the Medicine Buddha. Um, and then I began to think about this, because it wasn't a color that I was particularly drawn to, just usually. And then I noticed, I remembered that my friend, who had recently died, the last two years of her life had had this passion for sort of this iridescent dark blue glassware. I mean, it was really almost a little nuts, you know. And, and she would go, and, and she would say, I only want that color for my birthday. Or she even made me go to the store to try to find a uh, butter container, you know, a refrigerator made out of that glass. (laughs) And she wouldn't accept anything else. So I used to laugh at this, and we used to joke around about it, and it wasn't until I realized that all these blue vases and this blue glassware and all this stuff was exactly the color, you know, of this sort of midnight blue of the medicine Buddha. And the last two years of her life were difficult for her. You know, she really required a lot of healing at that time. She didn't make that connection particularly at the time. You know, and it wasn't after she had gone that, oh my God, you know, there it is again. <laughs> so this, 
understanding was very supportive to me. And I don't know if you see those kinds of things as superstition, you know, or synchronicity, or if you even bother to notice those things. Plants, images, colors, emails, you know, that come to you, that seem to have an interconnection and a meaning. For me, that has been very, very sort of foundational in my path. And if I've not seen connections like that, at least once in a while, I get sort of disoriented. You know, I feel, oh, things are shifting underneath me. You know, I have to let go of the, of the, of the old connections and try to open up to something new. And that's what has been happening lately with Medicine Buddha. The actual practices, um, how many of you actually practiced with a, with a deity in Vajrayana um, Buddhism? Probably Roger has. A few of you. Um, I'm actually a little surprised there's not more of you because in the uh, lesbian saga, there's quite a few women who have gone to um, what they call empowerments just out of the blue. You know, they've sort of gotten idea, ooh, Tara, you know. Of course, because a lot of the women are looking for female-type images to work with, and they're in the Tibetan tradition a lot, right? And so they will go there maybe for an evening and do something about Tara or for a weekend, um, and then just come back again, you know, and practice either Zen or Vipassana more. And I'm not sure what that is for them. I did that, and I would say it was interesting. That's what I would say. You know, it was interesting. I felt good that there was this Tara and that was a female body and that was inspiring. But I didn't have the same experience because I wasn't prepared in the same way. You know, I wasn't going for the same reason as I was with this particular deity. I was going here out of need. I was going here out of need, out of affirmation for healing, for exactly what I thought anyway this, this represented. And I was willing to try to do something and for five days, even if it was strange to me. So now I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about um, what some of the practices were like. Uh, again, this is really very brief, but it might give you a sense of difference or maybe something that you might or might not ever want to do. Um, so meditation hall, very similar to this. I'd say about 40 people. Um, and every morning, the same thing happens, and you kind of go through the day in the same manner. And the first meditation in the morning, um, aside from some very early devotional practices that I'd be honest with, I didn't get up for. <laughs> um, <coughs> you know, I kind of regret it now, but it was um, all Tibetan chanting, you know, and things like that, which I'm sure was quite wonderful, but I just didn't go. So then, so like, you know, about like 7.38 or whatever, the first thing that happens is that you sit there for maybe, I would say, 15 or 20 minutes, checking out your motivation for being there. That, to me, is sort of the vernacular for, for what we were doing, I think. Um, the actual words were um, preparation or motivational practice. So to me, it was sort of reflective. I sat there and I thought, now why am I here again? You know, like, what's this about? And the suggestions were given. You know, they were given, of course, that the motivation is forcible. You know, this is a Mahayana practice, so the motivation 
is, of course, for yourself, but also for others, very much so for others. So, you know, relieving the suffering of all beings. And the need for positive karma or positive potential, the idea that that could happen for you through practice. So why am I here? Oh, yes, I remember it's about, you know, healing myself, but healing all beings and trying to cultivate that, that affirmation, I think. Now, we know from almost all Buddhism that the intention of what we're doing drives everything. I mean, I think that's common all the way across the board. So it's interesting to see this so put up front every single morning. And then you get right into the visualization, right into the visualization. And it surprised me to some degree that the teacher actually did what I'm doing and read it. You know, that was interesting to me. And always read it exactly the same way every day. And then I got it. Oh, I see. It's supposed to be done exactly the same way every day, and it's very precise. So we have a couple of versions of it here, um, but I like this one because it illustrates some interesting points. So I'm going to just, it's short, and I'm going to read it to you. If anything comes to you while I'm reading it, that's fine. Um, but I think you might find it interesting. And this image is before the group. Larger than this, of course, probably about as large as that one up there. I close my eyes because from Vipassana, you know, I'm, I'm always closing my eyes and I know how to visualize from past practices. So that wasn't hard for me. But I did notice sometimes people were opening their eyes and, you know, getting inspiration from the picture. Visualize a large blue image of the healing Buddha of lapis lazuli in space in front and above you. Well, I had forgotten that lapis lazuli was, again, the gemstone color and association, of course, with the medicine Buddha. Um, And when it was first said, I remember that I had done some reading about this. Actually, there's a wonderful book, The Healing Buddha by Ravel Birnbaum, who really gets into detail from the Tibetan tradition about the images and the colors. And he talks a lot about lapis lazuli <coughs> and how it was very prominent in the day of the Buddha and how it has a big a deposit in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, he really he goes into it. I love that. Lapis lazuli. I know that. <laughs> you know? Um, the bracelet, it came to me right in the middle of the meditation that my sister last gave me for my birthday was um, lapis. Um, I've been wearing it a lot. I hadn't even made the association. And they said that the reason, a part of the association was not only the color of the deep blue of the iridescent sort of midnight sky, but also, you know, some lapis is flecked a bit with silver or gold or sort of more gold-looking like color. And again, the stars of the midnight sky. So you kind of get that association. So there's a lot to work with here. You visualize this healing Buddha of lapis lazuli in space in front of you and or, sometimes she did say or after a while, above you. Well, this set up a dilemma, right? Above, below, you know, where? Which is the best place? (laughs) Um, And it was so interesting to me. Immediately above was the best place for me. 
And later on, I realized what it was. It was because I don't know of how many of you are familiar with the body scan from Theravada Buddhism or the body sweep. But that's a practice where you start at the top of your head and you bring healing energy in a very intricate way, sometimes all through your body. Um, it can be done really quickly or it could be done for an hour into every blood vessel that you have. Um, and I've practiced that a lot. It comes particularly from my branch of Theravada Buddhism from um, Ubakin in Burma. Well, that, you know, there I was. I had, this is what I'm saying. It's so interesting. The practice I already had, the Buddha sitting up here, and we're supposed to, you'll see in a minute, bring this energy down. Oh, yeah. Right away, because of the sensate body practice I had, I could feel it. You know, I could do it easily. It wasn't abstract. You know, it was happening for me. And I realized why. In the left hand, upward in the palm of the deity, um, holds a bowl full of miraculous healing nectar. I don't know if you can see that. Um, and there were references made later on and explanations about this bowl of healing nectar and how that is the healing nectar of the Dharma, the teachings. In the right hand rests a palm outward on the knee, a blessing gesture, and holds a magic plant which cures all diseases. Wow. (laughs) And this is a real plant. This is Aurora plant. It exists. It's in Tibetan medicine. So this isn't just an image of a lotus, which is, you know, quite wonderful, you know, symbolizing wisdom and compassion or something. This is an actual healing plant. Interesting. The color is a deep, translucent blue, and the robes are in hues of orange, red, and yellow. So we place this image above the head at this point. We don't have to do anything else with it. We're not doing anything yet. Then we take refuge. Well, that's common, right, to all traditions. And I was able to understand and easily practice the kind of refuge they did. I take refuge until I am enlightened in all the Buddhas, Dharma, and Sangha. Well, that's very common. We did that. There was a lot of repetition to that. It went on for a while, but that was... That felt safe and good to me. And then there were metta prayers. I'm sure some of you are familiar with metta, the expression of loving kindness in the Theravada tradition. I thought, oh, so I was pleasantly surprised that there was metta. Again, translating, bringing up the feeling of love, of appreciation, of good energy, right, in order to do this practice. And I'll just read you a little of it uh, to show you how uh, recognizable, especially for you Theravadan people, it was. May all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. (coughs) And may all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. The three poisons. So that that was fine. That was home base for me. And then we move into prayer. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So um, prayer, I realized, was not something that was a strong practice for me in a traditional sense of prayer. Um, And there were several prayers that were done. 
And again, it was called, the um, object is to accumulate positive potential. In other words, good karma, energy. And some of this um, looked sort of Christian or Catholic to me. (laughs) It was just very interesting. You know, you can see the connection. I could take each area of this and spend, you know, a half an hour on it. But just to give you a taste, there's a line here that says, I confess all my negative actions accumulated since beginningless time. (laughs) Now, that didn't push some buttons. I don't know. (laughs) You know, that goes right to the whole thing, right? But see, I'm already in a good context here. You know, I see, I got the Buddha going. Um, (laughs) You know, I understand about metta practice, and I read this differently. You know, I read it in a deeper way. I read, yeah, of course, there's been a lot of trouble for a long time. (laughs) <laughs> right? And I've been part of that, of course, probably. And I'm not thrilled with that, so I'm sorry. You know? I mean, that's, that's the way I was able to handle that and not see this as a self-blaming, you know, condemning, judgmental line. Because it's true. There's truth there. And there's no reason why I can't confess, if you like, or at least agree that that's a possibility. And not be thrilled and be unhappy about it. But then the next line says, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Aha, I didn't remember that from my Christian background. Maybe that's probably in there, but I remember the other one more. <laughs> so now I can rejoice, though, in fact, that there's some good stuff. You know, that as an ordinary being, or us as ordinary beings, we, we have virtue too, right? And I can rejoice in that. So that gives you sort of a flavor for some of the things that would come up in the prayer. And then the offering. Now I knew ahead of time that there was going to be offering, that the altars were going to be, I mean, I would say the altar was maybe five times more ornate than this, as far as how much stuff was going on, how many bowls of things were burning, how many water good things were offered. Um, and that was explained really nicely sometimes in the evening by some of the senior students. And you would have the opportunity to participate in the offering if you wanted to, you know, and set the altar up and do things. And they were very um, down-to-earth about it, you know, and very, very nice. Um, and, I, of course, I understood it intellectually. What's going to happen here is we're going to make a request, and I'll get to that in a minute. We're going to request. I was requesting something from the deity, from the medicine Buddha, from my practice. And so I have to offer up something, right, in return. It's like we're doing a deal here. That's the way I understand it. And that's right, the same thing in Santeria or in many other traditions. You will notice when you go to these temples and you see all these offerings. I mean, think of Bali. Have any of you been there? Oh, those offerings, how extraordinary they are. They're art, you know, and they spend a lot of time on that. So what is that about? Well... It's about this, and um, I wrote down one line out of all the offering that someone spoke of that really made sense. They have a sort of a sort of esoteric <coughs> images of offerings, but then they say, if you can't do that, do this. Imagine everything beautiful in the universe and offer it to the deity. Okay, how about a sunset? You know. <laughs> Or um, a new outfit I bought, or you know, I mean, it sounds trivial, but that's not. People people offer the things that are meaningful to them, 
That's that's and these are symbolic ideas, but you know, I thought it, I thought it was very interesting. Um, and then I'll read this to you, if you can do this. This offering. The objects of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, friends, enemies, and strangers, my body, wealth, and enjoyments, I offer these without any sense of loss. Please accept them with pleasure and inspire me and others to be free from the three poisonous attitudes. And then there's chanting after that. So if you want to, you can give up everything. At least intentionally, you know. And then we get to make a request. <clears throat> and I will read this all to you, but the request basically is the same thing as the visualization in that the, the deity is called up again. Like it says, I request you, medicine guru, whose sky-colored holy body of lapis lazuli signifies wisdom and compassion as vast as limitless space. And here's the line that got me. Please inspire my mind. And then you'll have a whole thing. I request of you, you know, guru with the flower of medicine healing, da-da-da-da-da. Please inspire my mind. You know? And, and the more repetition of that, the more I got this, yeah, I really like that. <laughs> you know? And I sometimes ate in mind and heart. But, um, and this is done a lot. Like, a line could be done seven times, things like that. Then, there's a response to the request. Okay? And the teacher, again, reads, in response to your request, infinite white rays of light stream down from the heart and body of this king or queen of medicine, completely filling your body from head to toe. They purify all disease, afflictions, the negative karma, and mental obscurations they cause. Your body becomes the nature of light, clean and clear like crystal. Worked for me. <laughs> it really did. And crystal works for me also, so I was lucky there. But it really, I could feel this happening. And then as I am healed, do I heal others, right? And especially in the Mahayana tradition. So the light rays then radiate in all directions, right? Purifying the sickness and affliction of all sentient beings, inspiring them with the realization of the path to enlightenment. That's a lot, you know? And we did that, the whole thing, um, on into the afternoon. And um, there would be chanting around calling up this, the energy of the request being uh, granted. And um, then, of course, the dedication. And in probably all our traditions, we have the dedication of the merit, right? So in the end, kind of a thank you and an acknowledgement for what we have received and a sharing it again, right, with all sentient beings. power of these words were very strong and more emotionally charged for me than some of them in um, the regular Vipassana tradition. This is just maybe because I'm in an emotional place right now. I don't know. And I wanted to read you um, one of these dedications because it's, it's quite amazing to me. 
due to the positive potential accumulated by myself and others in the past, here present, and the future. May anyone who merely sees, hears, remembers, touches, or talks to me be freed in that very instant from all suffering and abide in happiness forever. Could we be that? Could we be that clean as crystal that that's what's going to happen? <laughs> anyway, I found that very inspiring. Just just the possibility, you know what I mean? That even for a moment, that I could be, um, if you want to say, purified or healed or whatever enough, not only for myself, but for others to be inspired in that way. So you can see the implications of the cross-practice issue that we raised earlier. Um, And I say, if you're ready for the potential of working with these deities, but again, I would recommend it within a teacher's setting because I think it's real powerful medicine if it's done correctly. So thank you. We have a little time for some questions. Sorry, I went on longer than I thought I was going. I'm just curious, Carol, if you had a chance to interact with the other participants and and get a little bit of their stories about why they were continuing. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did, and it was interesting because I didn't want to do that. You know, she said, okay, now we're going to have talking groups and, you know, five people talk about this. And I thought, oh, no, I have to talk to these people. I don't even know them, you know, and I don't want to do this. So um, I was very impressed. First of all, they were very deep practitioners. A lot of them had been doing deity-type empowerment work for a long time, like 10, 15, 20 years. Some of them the Medicine Buddha was new for, but the idea of all those things I just told you, that kind of practice was similar, and they knew it. And they very quickly were willing to talk about all those different stages that I talked about and what happened to them in those stages and what things they felt they could do better than other things and how that was affecting them in their life. It was very interesting. And there was a man, um, synchronistically in my groups, uh, there was a man, a gay man whose partner had AIDS who um, was having some kind of a recurrence. And he had come for that reason that he wanted to see if he could um, be there for what he was thinking was going to be a difficult time within the illness and how to be in that. And he shared that. Um, And he was new to the practice a little bit, so he wasn't sure about it. But he he was very inspired. There was a woman, it turned out to be a lesbian, who um, had been in a car accident. So she was coming more from the physical place and had just started to walk again. And a young woman, and she was limping, and talked a lot about how she saw the connection between mind-body healing. And she asked a lot of questions about that. They didn't talk a lot about the physical healing piece. This is typical, you may notice, all across Buddhism. Um, This is the closest I ever got to it within Buddhism. Um, but my understanding is that the mind and body are connected, and obviously if you're purifying your mind, you're purifying your body. whether it's just a simple detox or whether you're actually um, you know, improving your, your potential to heal yourself. And as you probably know, there are studies that are now being done on some of these things to prove that there is this connection. Does that answer any of it? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I was kind of curious as to, uh, 
I mean, I, I imagine there are a whole bunch of different stories of, of people drawn, right. like you were drawn. Right, exactly. Crises in their lives and, and you know, what they were. And, and some of them were crises, and um, some of them, I'd say about half of them were just because they were, you know, Vajrayana practitioners, and they just were sort of interested in this deity. Would that be different than a different one? You know, they weren't particularly there because it was the medicine Buddha. You know what I mean? They liked the teacher also. And this teacher offers this particular thing, too, and I don't know why. You know, some teachers will offer different things. And I don't know. Is, is this Vajrayana? That's the same thing. Yeah. Unless somebody needs to correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's the same thing. Right, Roger? <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism and Vajrayana are the same thing? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, Vajrayana is one of the divisions of Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. It's also found in Japan. Oh. And uh, also in China to a certain extent. Right. Away in, in, right. So that's what's happened. You know, as these things come to the West, we sort of throw them all together. Um, I don't know. They use the words. They use the word Vajrayana mostly on the on the um, thing I was on. But as I look at this book, as Roger just said, this man derives a lot of his things from China and from the Chinese interpretation of the suttas on this particular Buddha. So the, the, it's sometimes rather. For us as to whether it's yeah. the Sutra tradition or the Vajrayana tradition, the big distinction seems to be if you are in a posture of worshipping the, 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 the Buddha, the Sutra tradition, if you become the Buddha, the deity, it's in the Vajrayana. And this is something that needs to be done with a, a caution because you need to understand compassion and emptiness before you get there. Well, otherwise you think, well, I am the Buddha and you're not. Mm-hmm. And that's not the idea. Right. And they talked a lot about, you know, there's so much we could say about this, but there's different empowerments, like you say, and the ultimate is that, yes, you become these deities. And there was a lot of caution put out about that. You need to do that with a certain teacher at a certain time and have certain understandings. And they, they allow you to do that. But, you know, in the West, people just show up sometimes. You know? So it's, like, tricky. <laughs> David? Oh, sorry. Do you uh, see this as, uh, as working with, pre, you know, in any sense, working with pre, pre-conscious um, elements of your mind, like archetypal, like going back into the archetypes and actually... Maybe reconstructing some new ones or, or purifying that area of your, your brain. Is, you know, I mean, that's how I work with these. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if it, if it influences your dream life. Or do you notice in meditation that your your company is uh, better? Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> to those things. It's new to me, though. So when I'm new at something, I'm always, uh, you know, I use that don't know mind kind of thing, you know, from, from Theravada, and, I'm, and I don't go quickly, and I try to sit with and witness and um, not attach too many ideas to what is I'm experiencing yet. So I'm not sure what's going on, um, but I think these things work on very, very profound ways. That's what I would say. And the languages, if you want to use archetypes or... 
I don't know what these things really are. <laughs> right? I mean, what is a deity? What's an angel? What's a, you know? I noticed that in the Vajrayana tradition, they say the Buddhas. Theravada never says that, that I ever heard. <laughs> it's the Buddha. It's Shakyamuni. You know? It's nobody else. So what's that? You know? Anybody else? Howard? Well, um, it sounds like you feel led and directed all of these discoveries, these awarenesses, how do you understand that from a Buddhist perspective? Um, the way I try to make sense out of that is through um, the interconnection, the law of dependent origination and karma and the interconnection of all things. That's how I try to understand it. And that's hard to like say too much more than that. <laughs> but like that whole thing of the glass and the colors and all that that were coming to me, you know, I sort of see that as a cause that because I have positive potential with the caring that I'm doing for my friend Dion who is dying, that somehow because of a present or past positive karma or something of her, that she's drawing this blue to her for some reason. And I don't know what happened there. She's gone now. But it was very close to me, therefore. You know, and I was very close to her, and we have an interconnection, and then there were other people involved, and I'm a practicing Buddhist, and she's not quite, and so then... You know, you know what I mean? You can't really... It's the web of Indra or something. It's all these interconnections that um, if you can see them kind of in the moment connecting um, for good, you know what I mean? Then I try to move in that direction. If I see them connecting for, you know, defilement or confusion or ignorance or hatred, then I try to, you know, move, disconnect or move away from them. So maybe that's one way of thinking of it. I really, uh, really uh, enjoyed your talk, Carol. Um, uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, I sort of miss the ritual stuff from Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And um, so I sort of related to that. And uh, I just uh, got back from three weeks in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit more ritual there mm-hmm. going on that I had seen here. Most of the temples you could uh, get uh, a lotus and some incense and a candle to bring in. And it was very touching to see how devout uh, people going to the temple were. And, and you, if they were a monk, if there was a monk. I was there during the Buddhist birthdays that I was thinking. You could get blessings from the monk, mm-hmm. which reminded me of Catholicism when they bless you with holy water. <laughs> and, um, and there was chanting, uh, which I, well, just during that holiday, you know, most of the time when you visit the temples, there's nothing going on. But that was kind of neat. And I like the idea of visualization a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I was in touch with that when you talked. I had a big health scare recently, and I was doing open chakra, you know, stuff. Uh, but I like the idea of visualizing the Buddha and getting a lot of energy and then letting it go out because mm. on the retreats, on the positive retreats when we do, <coughs> they're usually filled with meta. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, towards the end of the retreat, I have way too much. I've been getting way too much grace that I feel I need, you know, and I really <laughs> send it out. Uh, and uh, so I like that, and really, it really did. Uh, 
help me to to push me a little bit in that direction and get a little bit out of my box, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. like, uh, and go for some things that I miss from my Catholic mm -hmm. background. And I do see it all as one, but um, I, I just think the idea. I like the color blue. I you know I just like the softness and the mm -hmm. and the healing of that. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm grateful. I, I certainly consider. Okay. Should we have Sangha announcements? No, I'm your host for today, and I'd like to extend a welcome, especially to anyone who's here for the first time. Please join us for tea and refreshments in the main room. If you have tea, please wash your cup. There's a dining bowl for contributions. We recommend five to eight dollars, more if, less if. There's a newsletter sign-up list if you'd like to keep in touch with us. And some people get together for lunch around culture as well. David? Uh, Lee Robbins is going to have a potluck, which you get on the 10th of April, and there are fires up there. George? A uh, reminder that our talks are available at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. Uh, also, recently, uh, due to a blessing from our ISP, we now have much more room to uh, put up talks. So, there are currently over 100 talks available on our. Wow. At no charge. That's wonderful. Yeah. Other sound good announcement? Todd and Darren, would you be the Donnable boys today? I'd <laughs> <laughs> <you> love to. <laughs> Thanks. Shall we stand in a circle and hold hands and offering? By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.